How many of us in here know our God is faithful? Amen. Amen. He never fails. Never yet, never will. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome you again this morning. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad you could join us today. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to fill out a Connect card, as John said, you can do that. Or you can uh, scan that little QR code uh, while we're in the rest of the service. We would love to have you connect with us so we can be a blessing in your life. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. Or if you want to follow along in the screens today. As you're turning there, uh, one of the announcements that... Uh, we didn't get a chance to announce today because it's Communion Sunday, is that we have Christmas store happening this week and next week, which is why our children are in the service today. It's because the whole gym is taken up right now uh, with a Christmas store with thousands of gifts. So if you have anyone in in the nursery this morning, you have probably already seen that, but there are thousands of gifts that will be blessing our neighborhood uh, already yesterday it started and it was uh, from what I hear an amazing time and this Tuesday night is actually Strong Towers time to have volunteers and we still need I think four or five people to sign up so if you haven't had a chance to sign up and you want to sign up to be there we'd love to have you I think it's seven to nine this Tuesday night uh, me and my family will be there we would love to have you serve uh, our community with us on Tuesday Matthew chapter 1 is where we will be this morning. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. 18 through 25. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the humble principle, the humble principle. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this season that we get to celebrate your coming into this world, breaking into the darkness. The light has shone. There is hope. And so God, I pray for us in the midst of the darkness that still pervades that we would believe in that truth. We would know the light who shines. We would know your presence, even today. We pray your word would do its work in our hearts, our minds, our whole body. For your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. You may be seated. Our family uh, recently visited the famous Georgia Aquarium. Yeah, see, there's my kids right there. They had a great time. 
Uh, they loved it. It, it, was, it was an incredible experience of getting to see so many different animals from all across the world. And if you've never been to the Georgia Aquarium, it is famous because it is actually the largest aquarium in the United States. And it's the third largest, I believe, today in the world. And so this is a massive place. It, it, it is uh, you know, covered in, in incredible uh, exhibits and, and you know, animals from all over the world. You know, they've got hundreds of different species. They've got whale sharks and beluga whales and tiger sharks and every kind of fish you can imagine and crocodiles and all, all these different things that, that are in this place that you can go and see. And so here we are going to this place with, with our family and uh, we're, we're excited to experience it and see everything. And we go because there's these massive galleries that are famous where you can see all of them almost at once. The guy there told me that the tank that holds all these, these fish is about the size of a football field. I mean, just massive tank. And, and it's covered in, in this, uh, or the side of it is, is thick glass where you can see into it. And, and it looks almost like a theater. And they've got these all throughout the aquarium. And so we're going to the, to the exhibit, and, and I think it was the second largest one of these galleries, and we're making our way through the little tunnel area, and we turn the corner, and I get shocked by what I see. I'm not shocked by the fish or the sharks or you know, the, the amazing array of different colors of coral. What shocks me is the human beings. The human beings that were right in front of us just imagine their arms are stretched out, their, their backs are turned towards this impressive gallery of God's beautiful creation that you couldn't probably see anywhere else in the world. And their backs are turned, their arms are stretched out, they've got their phone, and they're taking selfies. Selfies. Almost every single person in this incredible gallery are taking selfies in front of the glass with their back to the glory. And so what did we do? We did the same thing. <laughs> we, it, we just jumped right in and started taking selfies with our family. I had three or four people ask me if I could take their pictures, strangers. You know, all of a sudden, all we cared about was taking pictures of ourselves in front of this incredible gallery. And I walked away thinking of the irony of that. You pay all this money to come to this place to take a picture of yourself. But then I thought to myself, why, why are we so self-absorbed? Why am I so self-absorbed? I mean, it's not just at the aquarium, right? I mean, I, I get self-absorbed in my marriage. I get self-absorbed in the workplace. I get self-absorbed you know, with my neighbors who cause problems. I, I get self-absorbed with all kinds of things in my life. And, and I get frustrated with myself thinking, why do I get so consumed with me? And then you start to realize that this is really the, uh, the issue behind all of the other issues, right? It's not an issue of those people out there. It's, it's really an issue of us, these people right here in Strong Tower, the people who live in my house, the people who drive in my car, right? The people who's, who are wearing the clothes that I'm wearing right now. This is an issue of us. And really, it's the issue of pride. Pride is that issue that's the age-old problem that we turn ourselves inward. Pride is the issue that we, we make everything in life center around us. And humility is the exact opposite. Humility is saying, I'm not going to be inward-focused. I'm going to be outward-focused. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis, many years ago, wrote a famous book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you never read it, I highly recommend it. It's actually quite funny. He, he imagines this dialogue between these two demons. One's an older demon and the other's a younger demon. And he's kind of mentoring him in how to tempt humans. And so it's, it's an insight into spiritual warfare and kind of what, it's, what, what, what he's playing off there. But, but what's fascinating in this dialogue is, is one part he talks about this issue of humility. In Screwtape, he says this. He said, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means women trying to believe they are ugly and clever men trying to believe they are fools. Well, what he's saying there, if you didn't catch it, was he's saying the deception about humility is there's this false humility out there. The false humility is I'm trying to convince myself that I am terrible by trying to talk bad about myself. Maybe you've done that before, or you know people like that who are always walking around, and woe is me, I'm so terrible, gosh, I'm, you know, I'm bad at this, and I'm bad at that, and they're always talking bad about themselves. There's always a self-deprecating sense to whatever the conversation is. And it masquerades as humility, but it's not really humility. right? What makes it not humility, and why it's so deceptive, is because it's still centered on me. What I think is humility is really not humility because all I care about is that you would then have pity on me and maybe encourage me. You know, you're fishing for a compliment. Oh, no, you're not really that ugly. You're, you're beautiful. That, you know, that, that dress looks nice on you or that, that suit looks great on you or, or whatever it is, right? You're, you're fishing for someone to, to disagree with you to make you feel good about yourself because it's still really about you. It's a false humility. Because real humility, this is what he's saying, this is what C.S. Lewis is saying, real humility doesn't care about us at all. It's outward focused. It's outward focused. And so humble people actually are not insecure people. Humble people are the most secure people. Humble people are confident people because humble people can say, it's not about me. It, this isn't a selfie in sheep's clothing. It's about others. The, the genuine humility that God is calling us towards is an outward-focused, ultimately God-focused humility. And so today we're continuing this Advent series. We've been walking through this season. If you don't know, the Advent season is really a celebration of Jesus' coming. And really both of his comings. There's a first coming where Jesus is born into the world, which we celebrate at Christmas. But there's going to be a second coming. And so Advent is kind of living in between those two, where Jesus is going to come again. Just like he came the first time, he's going to come again to finish what he started. And so the Advent season is celebrating those uh, incredible moments in Jesus' work to redeem us. And this season, we're talking about humility. And we've been walking through different aspects of humility. And today we're coming to this principle that kind of guides the whole series. And this is the humble principle. You ready for it? Humility is outward-focused. Humility is outward-focused. And so rather than being false humility, which is still inward-focused about me, the, the thing that makes it genuine is that it's outward-focused. It's other-focused, ultimately God-focused. So how do we develop that? That's the real question. How do we develop that in our heart, this God-focused humility? First, we need to know that God is over us. We need to know that he is over us. If you're taking notes, this is the first point. God over us. Look at verse 18. We're going to jump into the story now. 
It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now pause for a second. Joseph and Mary, if you're not familiar with the story, Joseph and Mary are likely teenagers at this point. It was common in their culture that basically the two families would come together and, and they would propose that these two would get married. And it was usually somewhere in the teenage years that they would have this kind of arranged marriage set up. And what we find out is that they are betrothed. They're in the, the season of that process where it's kind of like our modern day engagement, but it's much more formal and it's legal. And so if you were betrothed to someone to be married, if you wanted to break that relationship, you actually had to file for divorce. Like this was a serious commitment. You were saying, I am betrothed to this person. And so you'll see in the text, it's, it's assuming that they're going to be married. It calls them husband and wife even before they actually are husband and wife. And so that's the, the serious commitment that's happening here. But Joseph and Mary are not some, you know, prince and princess who've had an arranged marriage that you might hear in a fairy tale. They are what you call broke. They, they don't have any money. They, they don't have any status. They, they don't have anything. And we realize later in the story, they're so poor, they can't even afford the proper offering at the temple later. And so imagine the scene. You, you've got these two teenagers who are betrothed to be married. They're struggling. They're trying to get by. They're full of excitement and fear and wonder and what's going to happen. All these emotions are happening. And then you enter into the story a surprise. Mary's pregnant. And the bigger surprise is it's from the Holy Spirit. I mean, what, what is Joseph supposed to think at that point? What, what is Joseph supposed to think? I'm betrothed to this woman that, that we're supposed to get married. We're, we're just months away probably from the wedding day. And she tells me she's pregnant. And it's not only not my child, it's God's child. I mean, sometimes you get so familiar with these stories, you, you just pass over the obvious chaos this must have been. I mean, the, the questions start swirling around. What actually happened? Can I trust her? Is she faithful? What, what does this mean? I don't know if this is true. I mean, all these questions are swirling around in Joseph's heart. And, and what's fascinating is Matthew actually focuses much more on Joseph. Luke focuses more on Mary's response. But here, it zeroes in on what Joseph thinks. And you can see he's wrestling He's trying to be a righteous man, but he's also trying to be a wise man. And, and he doesn't want to shame his, his soon-to-be wife. He wants to honor her. And, and so there's this tension of all these different things. And he finally decides to just make a decision. You ever had to do that before? You're, you're wrestling with a decision, and, and at some point it just comes time. You have to make the decision. But you know that you're, you're not quite sure yet. That, that, that's what happens. Here, he's, he's still in the moment of wrestling. In one sense, he's resolved, but in another sense, he's still considering. And into that, an angel shows up. And the angel says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, I, 
I know this doesn't make sense. Joseph, I, I know this isn't what you would have chosen. Joseph, I, I know this is going to be really hard. I know they're not going to believe you in the community. But Joseph, I need you to trust me. This is from God. Could you imagine? You, you don't know how, but you know who is behind it. You, God himself is in this without explanation. This is the first point I want to make. Humility submits to mystery. Humility submits to mystery. Let me, let me show you how this works. The other day I was in the, the grocery store, and uh, you ever grab one of those small little baskets in the grocery store because you think you're just getting a few items, right? I, I went in, and, and I'm just going to grab a few things and, and get out real quick, but the problem is I made the number one cardinal sin of the grocery store. I went while I was hungry. Number one cardinal sin don't ever go to the grocery store if you're hungry, but I, I did, and, and I was just grabbing a few things, and everything looks good when you're hungry. Everything looks appealing, and I'm, I'm hungry, so I'm like, yeah, I'll grab some of that and some of that, and next thing I know, I look down at the basket, and it's full, and, and I'm realizing I don't need half of this stuff, but, but I'm not going to go back around, and, and, and I really want to get more stuff because I'm still hungry, and, and so I'm kind of torn, and I realize I have to stop shopping. I have to stop shopping, not only because I'm going to run out of money, but I'm also running out of space. Here's the thing, listen. I, my appetite was greater than the capacity of that basket. My appetite was greater than the capacity, and so I had to stop. That, that's how mercy, or that's how mystery works. Mystery works like this. Listen, this is what Eugene Peterson says about mystery. He says, mystery is not the absence of meaning, but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Did you catch that? Mystery is not, there is no meaning in this, or there is no purpose in this. What it means is I can't comprehend what God is doing because my basket is too small. It can't hold it, the capacity of who I am. The infinite God is too big for me as a finite person. I can't hold him. I can't understand him, right? The moment you start thinking, you've got God figured out. You've put him in your little theological box, and you've answered all the questions. You've memorized a bunch of scripture, and you've got God figured out. That is the moment you can be sure it's not God. Because the moment you've figured God out, it's no longer God you're dealing with. It's an idol made in your image of someone who agrees with all the things you believe. Right? That, that's what happens is you formed this God who you can perfectly understand. And he happens to agree with you in all the things that you think about. But that's not God. The real God, the true living God, is beyond your comprehension. He's beyond my manipulation. He's beyond the ability of me to fully understand, to fully comprehend who he is and the way he works and how he does things and what he allows in my life, right? And so I have to realize that if he really is God, he has to be more than my Savior. He has to be my Lord. He has to be over me. You catch that? This is what Joseph is wrestling with. See, in humility, in humility, right, we have to trust his greatness. That's what Joseph is wrestling with. God must be greater than me if he is doing this because I don't understand what is happening. 
I don't understand how my fiance can be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. This doesn't make any sense, God. This, this is not in the rule books. This is not in what I have read about. This, this is not in my categories. But we submit. We have to submit to who God is in his greatness. We submit to his greatness in, in what he's doing in our kids' hearts. We submit to, to what he's doing in, in, in providing in our bank accounts. We submit to what he's saying about our relationships. We may not understand it. We may not have chosen it. We may not even like it. But part of humility is saying, I am choosing, despite my lack of understanding, I am choosing to submit myself. See, there's this God-focused humility that declares God's greatness is more than my preference. He is over my preference. I'm called to trust that he's able to run my life better than I can, better than you can, because he really is God. But also, we don't just trust his greatness, we also trust his goodness. See, if God is great, but he's not good, he's a tyrant. And and if he's good, but he's not great, he's just a teddy bear that you can snuggle with. But if he's both, and listen, he is, he really is, he, he's great and he's good. If he's both, then he's a God that you can absolutely trust because he has the goodness of heart to do everything in his greatness that is for your good. That that's how you can trust God. If he was just great and he was evil, then you shouldn't trust him. If he's good and he can't do anything for your life, then you shouldn't trust him. But if he's both, you can trust him with everything. You can trust him with your kids. You can trust him at your job. You can trust him with your crazy family members. You can trust him with your sickness. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him in every area of your life because he's great and he's good. He's over us. Humility comes under him. But how how do you trust like that? that? That's what I want to look at next. You have to know that he came for you. He came for you. Look at what the angel says next in verse 21. The angel goes on to say this, She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is fascinating to me. See, Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. But the angel speaks to Joseph and says, You are going to name this child. And by naming this child, Joseph was taking on the legal fatherhood of Jesus. So you could say, in a sense, that Jesus was adopted by Joseph into this family, this father that wasn't his own. And so Joseph is being called by the angel to to bring Jesus in as if he's his own son, to name him and thereby becoming his legal father. But the angel says, you can't just name him any name. Here's the name you're going to name him. You're going to name him Jesus. And the name Jesus is significant because the name Jesus that we use in English comes from the Greek here, which is Iesus. And Iesus comes from the Hebrew, which is Joshua or Yeshua. And so all three names mean the same thing. They mean Yahweh saves or Yahweh to the rescue, if you will. Right? It's this idea that God is going to come in and he's going to rescue you from something. But from what? The angel tells us. Jesus is going to be his name because he's coming to save you from your sins. Your sins. Now, listen to me. 
the, the mystery of the virgin birth is not some obscure doctrine that theologians argue about and skeptics debate. This is not some obscure doctrine that has no real purpose. Listen to me carefully. The, the mystery, and it really is a mystery. How does, God, uh, how does God enter into our world? We don't fully comprehend that, but, but this is essential to why Jesus came. You got to know this. The, the, the reason this is essential to why Jesus came is because Mary uh, becoming pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit is the way that God chose to maintain his full divinity in the person of Jesus. You might be asking, why in the world does that matter that Jesus is fully God? Here's why that matters. If Jesus isn't fully God, then he doesn't have the ability to live a perfect life in your place. And if Jesus isn't fully God, then he doesn't have the ability to die in your place and take all the wrath of God for all eternity that we've deserved for every single person in God's family. He doesn't have the capacity. He doesn't have the ability to do that unless he is fully God. To put it another way, the reason Jesus had to be born of the virgin and the reason Jesus has to be fully God is because it took God Listen, it took the death of God to save you and me. Nothing less. It took the death of God. It took God for us. That's mercy. See, humility runs on that kind of mercy. It's when you capture that vision that humility really happens. Jesus told a powerful parable about this, this, this humility that's necessary in Luke chapter 18. Maybe you heard the story before, the parable. It was between a, a tax collector and a Pharisee. Jesus says these, these two guys go up to the temple to pray, and, and they couldn't be any more different. The tax collector is, is not respected by anybody, and, and it is seen as kind of this fraud, this this uh, tyrant, this, this traitor of, of the people of Israel. And then you've got the Pharisee, who actually was lower on the, the social status. They were often uh, less wealthy than the tax collector, but they were more respected. That They were the moral police. They were the religious elites. They were the people that the masses looked up to and said, I want to be like that person. And the tax collector, everyone looked at and said, I don't want to be anything like that person. They've got money, but they've got no morals. They're traitors. And Jesus says, these two go up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee starts to pray first, and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like any of these other people. And the Pharisee starts to list all of his greatness. You know, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and, but I do these things. I, I fast twice a week, and I tithe of everything that I have. I, I give to the church. You know, I'm, I am faithful. God, here is my resume. And then he points his finger towards the tax collector, and I especially thank you I'm not like that guy. That's the Pharisee's prayer. And then the tax collector begins to pray. And the tax collector, with his eyes low and beating his chest, he begins to open up his mouth, and he starts this way. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. See, the Pharisee, when he prays, it's clear that he thinks the distance between him and God is like paper thin. You, you could almost see through it. It's just transparent. There's no distance between him and God. And the tax collector, tax collector made it very apparent that the distance between him and God is about as far as you could get it. It's the Grand Canyon between him and God. And so all he can do is bow down 
face to the ground. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. Jesus says one of them came out of the temple justified and the other one didn't. One was proud and the other was humble. One was me-centered and the other one was God-centered. But what made the difference? It was mercy. It was mercy. Mercy is what fueled his humility. Did you hear that? See, this is how it works in our life as Christians. The greater we see our sin, the greater we're going to see our Savior. I mean, it seems counterintuitive. It doesn't feel like that's the way it should be. It feels like if I get closer to God, I'm going to feel less sinful. It feels like if I get closer to God and God gets bigger in my life, then sin must get smaller in my life because I'm becoming more holy. It's the exact opposite. In fact, the closer you get to God, the more you see your need for Jesus. The closer you get to God and the bigger God gets in your life, actually the bigger your perception of your sin gets. It doesn't mean you actually become more sinful. It doesn't actually mean you're growing in sin. What's happening is you're becoming more aware of the sin that was already there. What happens in our life is the closer we get to God, we see the gap is farther apart. We thought the gap was real small. Like the Pharisee, we thought we've got our 10 things that we do and and we don't do all the bad stuff. We do only the good stuff and therefore we must be close to God. We must be just like him. But the closer you get to him, you see that he's much different than you. I start to see how impatient I am, yet his patience is unending. I start to see how discontent I am, and yet I see that God is so fully satisfied in himself. I start to see how judgmental I am towards those who are different than me, and yet he is so gentle and lowly with the worst of sinners. The worst. It's the strangest thing. I mean, the closer you get to God, the more you want to cry out, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I mean, ask yourself, seriously, do, do the non-Christians in your life, do they know that you know you're a big sinner? Do, do the people at your workplace, do they know that you know you are a miracle of grace? Do the, do the people around the table at your family gatherings, do, do they know that you know that without the grace of God, you would be nothing? Notice I didn't say, do they know that you're a sinner? They know that. Do they know that you know that? Because I think the perception of the church and the perception of Christians usually is not that we are the sinless people. We're the people who can't see our sin. And so people outside the church, they look at us and they think those people just don't know what's really happening or they know and they're not willing to say it. They're not really willing to confess it. I mean, what if you just led with that? What if the people in your life who who don't believe, the people who who are far from God, what, what if you just led with that? Listen, I'm the biggest sinner you've ever met. These are the things that are happening in my life that I just have no control over. I, I keep struggling in this area and that area. You are going to be disappointed in me. You would shock people. Because they expect from Christians that we would be the people who, like the Pharisees, say, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I'm glad I'm not like that person. Not the people who say, God, have mercy on me. 
But listen, this, this is what God is calling us towards. This, this is what humility looks like. The greater need for mercy means there's a greater need for humility to receive it. Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. In other words, what Paul is saying is, if, if God is the one who had to die for us to have our debt paid, if, if my debt before God was so big that it can only be paid by him, then there is nothing left for me to boast about. Because he's paid it all. He paid it without me. He's fully paid it. He paid for my past sins. He paid for my present sins. He's going to pay for my future sins. He, he paid for my big sins. He paid for my small sins. He paid for my hidden sins, for my public sins. He paid for all my sin without me. And so there's nothing left for me to boast. Nothing. All I can do is rejoice. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus came to save us from all our sin. But how did he do that? This is the last point. God with us. Look at verse 22. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, Matthew draws the connection now between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's pulling in the prophet Isaiah to help us understand what's happening in this birth scene. And I won't get into all the details because we don't have time, but just to say this passage has been hotly debated uh, because Isaiah wasn't really talking about Jesus at this point, is what some scholars would say. And so I would simply put it this way. Matthew is, is doing what was often common in the New Testament, there, there was an immediate application in the Old Testament, and then there's an ultimate application in the New Testament. And so it's common for them to say there was a, an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah's time, but there's also an ultimate fulfillment that's happening in Jesus. And so what, it's similar to what Jesus is being called Joshua. Jesus, like Joshua, is going to deliver God's people from their sin, right? It's the same thing that's happening here. He now uses another name. He says Jesus is also Emmanuel. So the name Jesus is about who is coming. This God has come, but how does he come? He comes to be with us. He comes not from a distance, or, or he saves us not from a distance, but he saves us from close quarters. See, the point isn't that Jesus is God and thus far away from us. The point is that Jesus is God and thus near to us. Near to us. See, Jesus must be both fully God and fully man to fully save us. He couldn't save us from a distance. He couldn't save us with a delegation. He couldn't save us by playing it safe. The only way Jesus could save us was to become one of us. The divine nature had to take on our human nature. The infinite God had to wear finite skin. Jesus will be born into the obscurity of poverty with parents that no one would believe, in a town that no one would respect, in a way that no one would see coming. God came for us at the bottom of society, entering in to save the least of these. But he had to become like us and be tempted like us so that he could be victorious for us. See, he would be tempted in pride. He would be tempted by the crowds and the approval and the power. He would be tempted to make it all about himself like we do. But Jesus' glory wasn't in himself. Jesus' glory wasn't in the crowds. It was in the cross. It was in the cross. His glory, listen, his glory would be our glory. 
And so his glory was rescuing us from the depths of sin. His glory was in pulling us up from the pit of despair. His glory was in the redemption of all his people because we couldn't deliver ourselves. God had to come to be with us, to deliver us. He had to be our substitute, the humble God for a proud people. And so the only path to humility for us, the only path to humility is through this humble God. See, humility lives in union with Jesus. That's how it happens in us. It's through him who came before us. Benjamin Franklin, in his autobiography, he, uh, he writes about all kinds of different things about his life and different stories. But, but one of the things that was fascinating to me about his story was his pursuit of virtues. And now Benjamin Franklin, by his own account, he, he was more of a deist than a Christian. And so he kind of put together his own spirituality, if you will. And it was really based on what it meant to be a, a moral person, and an upright person, a productive person. And so he became famous for his you know, witty sayings and his, his uh, kind of general wisdom about life. And, and one of these days, he, he put together a list of virtues that he wanted to live out. And he actually put together a chart that he would keep track every day. And he would check the boxes. You know, I worked on this, and I worked on this, and I was bad at this. And, and he would track his progress of these 12 virtues. And then one day, one of his close friends came to him and, and kindly said to Benjamin Franklin, Look, I know you've got these 12 virtues, but let me let you in on an insight. A lot of the people who are close to you say you're a very proud man. Now, it kind of shocked him a little bit because he, he didn't expect that. But what did he do with that information? He did what he probably would have done with anything else. He decided, I'm going to add to my list of virtues. And so he added a 13th virtue, humility. And he started to pour himself into humility. And how can I pursue humility? I need to work on humility. He tracked his progress. And year after year, he's working harder and harder to become more humble. And then he finally gave up. And he realized, Benjamin Franklin realized, that he was better at appearing humble than actually being humble. And this is what he said in his autobiography. It's fascinating. He said, There is perhaps no one of our, our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. See, what he's saying... What he's saying is what we all know is true. Humility isn't just hard. Humility is impossible. The reason he gave up is because he realized after years and years of saying, I'm going to work my hardest, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to be the most humble person anyone knew about, that no one's going to say I'm a proud man again. What he realized is I don't have it in me to be humble. This is the miracle of the gospel. The miracle of the gospel is not to say to you, go out and be a humble person because Jesus was humble. The miracle of the gospel is that Jesus goes before you to save you by being a humble savior, to change your heart. See, humble people are not just people who know that God is over us and God needs to come for us and God is with us. It's actually that God is in us. God has to live in you. He has to transform you from the inside out to become the humble person that we have to be because that's who he is. But it's his work. And so if you hear me today and you hear me the rest of the series and you think my job is to now go be a better humble person, you're missing it. You're missing it. This is how you become humble. 
You fill your heart and your soul with the humble God. You, you capture the, the vision, the imagination, the beauty of who he is, that he would come and die for you and me to give everything to have you. He would give all of that. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you'll look up and you'll look around and you'll realize I've become more like him, little by little. But it's because of what he's done in me. This humble God is changing me. That's who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for who you are that you've gone before us. You've come in your humility, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, born of a woman, born under the law, born as one of us. Lord Jesus, that is just so beyond my little tiny basket can hold to understand how God could come for me and take on flesh for me, for us. Lord, I pray you would help us today to have your Holy Spirit capture our hearts, our minds with that that our souls might be renewed and you might transform us from the inside out, that we would bear fruit of humility, but it would be genuine fruit, genuine humility because of your work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.